Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. You're listening to the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's episode, we have another edition of CR Classics for all of you listeners. Our look at some of the best matches in tennis history. We break down the context of the match. We get into the nitty-gritty of each point, the biggest moments, the blown opportunities. We talk about the storylines coming out of the matches as well. And on today's podcast, we have a treat of a match discussion for you all today. I am joined by New York Times writer, host of the No Challenge, remaining podcast and of course a returning guest here on our Cracked Rackets platforms, Ben Rothenberg, to talk about a match that happened when I was nine years old, yet even then I knew it was one of the most consequential results we had seen in professional tennis in quite a bit of time. We break down the 2005 Australian Open women's semifinal between Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams and people like me who were born in 1995 who really grew up during during the 2000s, the 2010s, that's when we matured as tennis fans. And we all thought the Serena Sharapova rivalry might dictate a generation of results on the WTA Tour, certainly the way Sharapova came out of the gates in her career, winning a Wimbledon title so early on, the success she had on the hard courts as well. We thought we were seeing another of the game's great champions emergence. Certainly, you know, her history speaks for itself. But in 2005, Serena Williams was not the Serena. Williams we have all come to know today. She was not the undisputed greatest champion of this generation of women's tennis players. There were still questions surrounding her dominance, uh, questions about whether she could return to the form she had shown early in her career when she won the Serena Slam. And, you know, again, when doing this podcast in 2020, we know how her career transpires, but there were a lot of questions surrounding Serena in 2005, and this match reflects that. The comments that you hear in the box from people like Mary Carrillo and Pam Shriver, it's a fascinating point in tennis's history, and of course, Ben and I have so much fun. Bren, hey, great shot to me. Ben and I have so much fun breaking down this result, talking about those narratives, talking about the way this match transpired and how it affected the rise rivalry between Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams moving forward. And folks, let me just say, we talk about everything. As you can tell when you looked at the audio file, this is about a two-hour podcast, and I do want to say before we get into it that if you want to hear a more filtered, more buttoned-down version of this event, you also want to see highlights of the match we're talking about weaved into our commentary, be sure to go check out our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube.com, search Cracked Rackets. You can find the video form of this podcast. Ben and I on screen. You can see our smiling faces. We, of course, have a bunch of fun with one another. Uh, But we, you know, you can also see highlights of the points we're talking about, the biggest moments of the match, some of the commentary moments we refer to, uh, all weaved into one video produced by our super producer, Daniel Westoff. He always does such an extraordinary job. So if that is something that appeals to you, be sure to go check that out on our YouTube channel. Of course, this podcast version doubles the length of that YouTube video. So if you want to hear all of the nitty and gritty of the details, and again, we get all into it. You want to hear what I was up to in 2005, what Ben was up to in 2005, stick around for this podcast form because I promise it is going to be a really fun episode for all of you folks. Of course, the reason we're able to do these episodes here at the Great Shot Podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at DraftKings. And we mention it repeatedly on these Cracked Rackets podcasts, but it's worth saying one more time. 
Tennis is maybe the only sport that sees action 24-7, 365 days a year when it's going full tilt. And that's why we love it so much as tennis fans, because from the future circuit to the Grand Slams, tournaments are constantly taking place across the globe, and fans of the game are routinely treated to spectacular play. Now, we do our best here at Crack Rackets to break down all of the results, analyze the emerging trends, offer our predictions of what we think will happen next. But we know as a fan, as former players, uh, we're all still tennis players at heart, and as such, as fun as it is to watch these matches, we all want a piece of the action. That's why we at Cracked Rackets are thrilled to announce our partnership with DraftKings. We know listeners of this podcast are the most informed tennis fans in the business, as you prove to me repeatedly on tennis Twitter, Uh, but what's the point of all of that knowledge if you can't take advantage of it? That's why we think it's time for you to bet on tennis, and thanks to our partnership with DraftKings, you can do just that and get a cracking racket sign up bonus of up to $1,000. Here's how it works. One, you're going to go to DraftKings.com. You're going to create your DraftKings Sportsbook account and make a deposit. The good news for you, DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $500. Then you've got this money sitting around. You might as well make your first bet. And the good news for you, once again, DraftKings is going to match that bet with a risk-free first bet of up to $500. And I know what you're thinking. There's not much going on right now. You know, no ATP, no WT action, but we all have enjoyed the emergence of these videos various exhibition events throughout the globe. And guess what? You can get on the action in those exhibition events by going to DraftKings.com. Right now, the Atlanta series, the Match Play 120 event, uh, all of those odds available for each of those matches on the DraftKings tennis section of the site. So go check it out. You know, there's no reason for you to sit behind. We're all watching these exhibitions. We want to, you know, raise the stakes for yourself. Go to DraftKings.com. Get in on the action. And in fact, if you want to let them know we sent you there, just go to dkng.co slash cracking rackets to play again to get that free first deposit at 20% up to $500 to get that risk free first bet up to $500 go to dkng.co slash cracking rackets act quickly before this offer expires and hey Maybe, you know, if you have a gambling problem, be sure to call 1-800-GAMBLER if you're in New Jersey, West Virginia, or Pennsylvania, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. You must be 21 years or older to play and be in a participating state. And again, go to dkng.co slash cracking rackets to get in on all of the action. All right, with that said, let's get in on the action in this episode. Without further ado, my episode of CR Classics breaking down the 2005 Australian Open women's single semifinal between Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams with my friend Ben Rothenberg from the New York Times. Westoff, roll it. Joining me for today's edition of CR Classics, you may know his work as a writer for the New York Times, as a podcast host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. I affectionately know him as someone who is a repeat guest here on our Crack Rackets platform, Ben Rothenberg. Ben, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I affectionately return. I am happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's been, uh, been lovely to be here, and thank you for reaching out to me in this time of uh tennis separation and barrenness and loneliness you are a light in the darkness 
Oh, I appreciate you saying that. That's because I have spotlights glowing on me right now. That's that, not that, that probably any, is it. That probably is it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the reason I say that for those of you listening to this in podcast form, we of course also have this video on our YouTube channel. Just search Cracked Rackets. You can find today's edition of CR Classics. And again, Ben, thank you for taking the time to join. I texted you and I said, "Hey, we're doing CR Classics." And little did I know you were such a hot ticket. By the way, you're doing a show, Gil Gross's show oh, yeah. yesterday. You're doing this show today uh i was going to almost say the hottest ticket in tennis podcasting outside of noah rubin in the intro but i decided to <laughs> to scrap that one um i'm but, doing something with you know, noah later in the week actually so the actually and <laughs> and something I, I think that's already out there with, with mike cation so like the, there's a lot of you know the the family tree of tennis is crossing a lot a lot of a lot of tennis podcast incest happening here which is all all fine all good. Oh, absolutely. Great minds think alike. There's no yeah. denying that. And yeah. I will say this is the first time I've had you tweet out our podcast topic beforehand. I think that may speak to your excitement to do today's podcast. And of course, that gets into uh, the match. You know, it's a little bit of a gripe there, I suppose, Ben. But, you know, that gets into the match we want to discuss today. I shot you a text saying, hey, would you be interested in this? You're like, yeah, what match do you want to do? And I said, Ben, I want to leave this up to you. I like to accommodate my guests here at Cracked Records. Technically, you gave fun- me a suggestion. And I rejected it. Is what happened. <laughs> actually, what happened? Well, I wanted to make you look a little bit better, but I yeah. guess if you want to show that no, authority, I mean, I mean, you, were like, you were like, you were like Halep was wacky, and I was like, eh, nah. I wanted something that was like that is was a little bit further longer ago, because you know we have time to get into things, and not something that you know maybe most people. I don't know. I don't know how many of your fans or people listening or watching on YouTube would have been following tennis closely 15 years ago. Um, but this match, I think, still has a ton of resonance. I think this match is like a big match that really did shape a lot of the sport to come in, in, in a way that I think is fairly unique among matches. Like, this one really was. And I had some debate with people, actually, after tweeting about this early this afternoon, gotten a chat conversation with Matt Schlope of Tennis Australia, who you may know. He was. We were debating about whether or not this match was more important or their next match was more important. But uh, we can get into that later. <laughs> no, uh, no question about that. I'm sure that we will. And, you know, again, to uh, sort of get into what today's match is, it, you referenced there, it's 15 uh, years later, the match we are going to be talking about today on CR Classics, the 2005 Australian Open between Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova. And look, obviously, 2005, you can see my face on camera. I like to think I look fairly young. I look my age. And, you know, for me, I'm 10 years, or I think I'm nine years old at the time, turning 10 that October. I have a story about what I was doing in 2005, but you mentioned this. It's 15 years ago. What is 15 years ago Ben Rothenberg up to at this time period? 2005, I was a senior in high school. I was in the class of 05 here in Washington, D.C., and I was probably watching a little more tennis during Australian Open, or following, I use the word following more tennis during the Australian Open than usual because NHL was locked out. My other big sport, I remember that about 05 in sports. And yeah, those were those were kind of the main things that are important. I was 17. I, this is the last match, uh, my last Grand Slam as a minor. I turned 18 in February 20, 2005. <laughs> you and Maria Sharapova both. Exactly. Yeah, no, we're very similar ages. And she just uh, quit the sport. So maybe she, I don't know what she's telling me. So uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, me and Maria were close in age. And that was always, and I, I mean, we've talked about this before on your show, but like 87 being the best year for tennis and you argue about whatever you're 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 born 96 is it 96, 95, 96, 95, 95 95 sorry and uh yeah the 87 Sharapova Djokovic Murray Rothenberg I mean it's really tough to beat <laughs> 
<laughs> Again, yes, I I always will appreciate that joke. Um, but no, I did you get to watch this match live? Because what I remember from this, it, it's a twofold story. First, we'll talk about the tennis equation. Uh, but I remember this Grand Slam in particular. It was the Roddick, Federer, Safin, Hewitt, all four making the top four seeds. And, you know, I wasn't as well-versed in both men's and women's tennis then as I am now. But I remember fighting with my mom, being like, Mom, you have to let me stay up and watch these matches. Like, Eric, my older brother, Eric, you're going to let him. He's almost 13. Like, come on. I, I, I'm almost 10. Like, you can let me do this. And it was a full debate. And I remember also, this is the non-tennis part of the equation, is that year. So I'm a third grader. And third grade, fourth grade was my academic peak. I don't know if you want the full backstory, but, you know, I skipped. We're already grade. here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, I. I like I said, my peaks was multiplication tables. I was just really good at them. And in third grade, there was this system called homework passes. And if you got an 100 on a test or a quiz, you got a homework pass. And I got my way up to like 25 passes. And I was a nerd too. So I was going to do my homework no matter what because I was like, you know, what, what else am I going to be doing? And I remember this kid, lovely guy by the name of John M. Trevetti, comes up to me and says, Alex, I will give you 50 bucks for your 25 homework passes. And I was like, $50? Like that is a lifetime supply of Reese's like I'm gonna do it anyways done sold deal sold and then I remember so he must have used like four in a row in one week and our teacher goes John I'm like you don't have this many passes where did you get them from and he like immediately snitches me out he's like it was from Alex he sold them to me $50 like I swear I didn't do it and my teacher Mrs. Thomas lovely lady comes up to me she's like Alex and I'm like oh no like I'm about to get it it's over for me I'm not going to get to watch this Australian Open at all and she's like you know I just want to say you can't do this but this is very entrepreneurial of you. And I was like, entrepreneurial? Like, that's an adjective. I'll take it. Um, and so, that's an adjective. I, I got to say, I'm not, I, it, it would take me a while to convert back to 2005 third grade currency, what the exchange is based <laughs> on today's $20, $20 for adults. But I feel like you could have gotten a better deal. I don't know, $2 per pass. Is that a good deal? You think that's a good deal, I guess. So yeah. my, my counter would be what person under the age of 10 has more than $50 cash? On? That's true. Where did he get this money? What was that's what, this? Look, I, he probably was dealing drugs and I was just dealing homework passes. And I was like, this is ridiculous. But I remember just thinking, I've trade, yes. Yeah, I was like, because I remember he, he gave me like, I, it must have been an even number, but it was like 15 singles. And I was like, dude, you really pulled into the piggy bank here. Like, I don't know where you found all this cash. Uh, and it was a win. So, you know, for me, a, a good time, I guess. So I had no problem, I suppose. Yes, go back to that. My story of watching this match in particular, um, I had a friend in high school, still have, still friends with him, Alex Rails, who was a, a big Serena fan also. And uh, I did not, I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's because, unlike you, I never did homework. So I think my parents, like, <laughs> turned off, let me get this right, they turned off cable like, during the school year. To keep us like more focused, which is I don't think worked, but it made everyone more cranky at least. So, um, so I did not have cable in January 2005 when this match was airing on ESPN two. But by this point, we had internet at home, uh, which we hadn't had for that long. And this is about the time it, it, this we're talking about here, and so I could watch the match on live score. So I watched this match on live score while Alex Rails sitting in front of his TV in his house sent me constant 
AIM updates, instant messaging, AOL instant messaging about what was happening <laughs> on this match. Did you, you're too young to have ever had an AIM account, probably. Oh, I, MC0659, which stands for Middle Child. It was October 6, 95. Um, <laughs> look, I was not very creative. No, that's not bad. Uh, and yeah, so I, I watched this entire thing through LiveScore and his IMs, which was actually like very intense because like all you see is the score moving and there's match points in this match that get saved. And it was a pretty good match just for the scoreboard, I got to say. So uh, and then years later, I got this match on DVD back when that was a thing that people could get <laughs> matches on DVD before YouTube. Uh, really was established and certainly before you could put four hour videos i don't know why the video is four hours by the way the match is only like less than three that was confusing and it's choppy at the end too yeah i i once i got to the end i was like okay because i knew what the score was so i was like this is going to end i thought maybe there'd be like a long post game some press conferences but we didn't get that unfortunately but anyway uh watched it via that and then yeah later on watched it fully in uh dvd form and then watch it also on you know youtube it's one of those matches if i ever need like a quick tennis fix like watching the match points in this match is uh it's a pretty it's a highlight i know those match points by heart (laughs) well good because we will get into that and more as we go through this match and for those of you who are listening to cr classics for the first time what ben and i are going to do not just get into the match the details the biggest points the blown opportunities but also start out by setting the scene for you listeners and i as you mentioned from the top ben you go back to 2005 and just look at where the wta was at in terms of generational shifts in terms of who was moving to the top of the game who was falling off what generation was rising this was a fascinating time period for the wta oh absolutely now this was a sort of interesting transition period it had been a little bit after what people talk about the sort of golden age of wta or you know that's debated but like turn of the millennium wta was like really considered pretty peak when you had the williams sisters coming up capriotti and davenport top of their games hingis still a very relevant player Anna Kornikova being like the most famous athlete in the world, almost male or female for good and bad reasons. Uh, it was, this was a little bit after that thing. The dust had settled a bit. So from like 2000, 2001, 2002, that was the Williams domination period. Like Venus started it off and then Serena took over, won four slams in a row between French Open 02 and Australian Open 03. So first Serena slam, she called it. And then, uh, and then the Belgians came. The Williams just got a little bit injured and lost a couple matches, key matches to the Belgians. And the Belgians came. Kleisters got to number one. Ennin got to number one. Uh, Ennin won three slams. And then the Russians come in 04. And the Russian arrival uh, is really led. I mean, Muskina got the first slam at the French Open, but Sharapova was the big star. And the young one who was really considered a future future number one. And really, actually, she is the only one of them who got to number one of that generation of Russians. So... Uh, Sharapova had beaten Serena in the 2004 Wimbledon final, which was considered a massive upset. And it really was. It was one of 2004 Wimbledon was one of the first tournaments that I, that I was like home from school as a 17 year old, like didn't have a job that summer. Just like stayed and watched like every session of ES, of I guess it was ESPN's coverage of Wimbledon, also NBC. I guess had some of it back then too. And yeah, and so and Sharapova winning, I think, had been a really seismic upset. I it was the first like tennis result that really shocked me. I did not see that coming. Serena had been pretty inevitable, and she really got her doors blown off by Sharapova in this Wimbledon final. It was one and four, and it didn't really feel that close at times either in the second set. Uh, so yeah, so then they those two kind of merged as the two alphas, the two biggest stars on tour. They play at the year end championships at the Staples Center in L.A. It was held there back in '04. 
and Sharapova wins in three sets after Serena suffers an ab injury midway through that match in the final of the year in championships. And, and so then she's two and one against Serena. She's won the last two. She's like the it girl. She's like the new person. And people are talking more and more about how Serena is like fading, how Serena is, and the Williams is as a package. Cause they had arrived at a package. They were often talking about as a package, how they were really receding from the sport. And, you know, there was a lot of, I, I, I tweeted a bunch of clips from this match today and people were like, wow, they're so dumb. These commentators, how could they know? But like, that's what they were living then. It's like, I mean, hindsight can be 2020, but I think you do Serena particularly a lot of uh, injustice. If you don't, if you make her sound like she was always inevitable, like she wasn't like Serena had, especially in this phase of her career, it was pretty rocky. Uh, her interest in the sport was going in and out. She had some issues with her fitness and conditioning that came later. Her sister had just been killed in a uh, drive-by shooting in Compton. And that was very, you know, tra understandably traumatic for her and for Venus. And things got rocky there for a stretch from really from 04 to 08, uh, when basically when Serena more or less got back to number one in 2008 when the US Open there. But this was in the middle of that. And, you know, this tournament, you I think you just sense this, like, desperation from Serena or this like real like the stakes feel high for Serena here in a way they really haven't ever before or after like I think that she saw Sharapova really pulling away from her really taking control if she'd beaten her three times in three big stages in a row I, I think it would have been uh, very tough for her to take so yeah so I think there's a lot of intensity and a lot of high stakes in this match and Sharapova um you, yeah you hear it from the commentators in this match it was interesting rehearing it now but i remember it even back then or when i got my dvd like they uh <laughs> them saying you know sharapova is like the better player here like sharapova is like got better technique better ground strokes is a better fighter just like is a was the new kid coming in and it was her turn and you know up until five four in the second set with sharapova serving for the match for the first time like yeah that, that all looks pretty pretty rational yeah, so uh, I have many things to say off of that. Uh, I, I do. Let's save the commentators for the match because I think that's a huge piece of the equation. I listening to that and first of all reading some of the YouTube comments, the vitriol in them. I never go into a comment section of anything. Is what I continue to learn. Um, but you talked about Serena and her entering this match and. It's a vulnerable Serena Williams, which is fascinating to say because at this point she's 23 years old. And hypothetically, you know, you would think athletically she's at the peak of her powers. But as you mentioned, this is where she's about a season removed from, I think it was, quadriceps surgery. And I know she had a similar tear in her stomach. And there were a couple of different things for her uh, going wrong. And, you know, in that 2003-2004 season, uh, she lost a lot of time there. She played seven total tournaments in 03. She played 12. 12 total tournaments in 04. She finished 04 outside of the top six for the first time since 1998. And in that 04 season, yes, yeah, she made that final at Wimbledon, as you mentioned, but it just wasn't a clean year for her. And so there was doubt completely, as you mentioned. And, you know, for her, I think another piece that has to be, uh, considered is the way her last Grand Slam went, and it was at the 2004 U.S. Open, and again, this is something where I'm going to have to rely on you because, you know, eight-year-old me knows even less than nine-year-old, but there was the quarterfinal against Capriati. There were some—what some, some uh, what I've read was that the calls were not great. What happened? Oh, yeah. I, could, I mean, this is on YouTube also if you want to revisit this match, but— this was the match that like made me angriest of any tennis match I ever watched. Uh, and again, I was a Serena fan. And that she just got hosed repeatedly on calls. Um, calls that were overrules or sort of like, there was one particular one where Serena hit 
I think sort of a down the line or maybe like a little bit inside out of a backhand landed well inside the line. She won the point um, or she thought she won the point and then it, she's serving. And then the chair empire says, Mariana Alves, the chair empire says advantage Capriati as a score. And every, everyone's just like confused. We just think she got the score wrong or something. And I'm still to the state, not sure if she actually just got the score wrong and then like made up an overrule to just because she was embarrassed about that. But like she said that she overruled the call. She didn't actually say anything. She didn't make a vocal overrule. Things got messy there. There were several more calls that uh, Shot Spot, it was called back then, which is the ESPN Hawkeye graphic, showed maybe actually in, on a USA network was broadcasting US Open, somebody had been like Mac Cam or something. I forget what they exactly they called it on in 2004 US Open. But uh, they were showing these wrong calls. And that match really is what set the wheels in motion for Hawkeye review. Like the calls were that egregious in this 04 Serena Capriati match that it's why we have Hawkeye today. It's why we had Hawkeye by the next year's US Open. Like this this technology been pretty experimental and they talk about it actually during this broadcast of uh this match in 05 australian open like hey this change is coming and i think it debuted in miami that year uh was the first tournament that had that had hawkeye review technology being used so for challenges and, and line calling and not just for entertainment during a broadcast so yeah so that had been there and that a bit like serena really felt you know rob in that match and that was the first we now know like infamously like her like u.s open controversies that was really the first except for Indian Wells, which hadn't gotten as much attention maybe as it should have at the time. I think it got more attention later on, the 01 Indian Wells thing. But that was the first real controversial Serena Grand Slam match, was that 04 U.S. Open Capriati match. And from there, you know, things kind of um, just got a little bit more heated or a little more fraught and just, you know, feeling like she was playing. There was some sort of injustice going on with her, that she was being maltreated. When you hear, like, the way the, and the media, too, like, there's a press conference moment of hers they show in there where she was talking someone asked her like are you in decline is your game you know are you and your sister fading out so not to cut you off i have the quote it was bud collins asks her the question are you and your sister in decline and she says that's not fair and she goes on i'm not i'm tired of not saying anything we've been practicing hard we've had serious injuries i had surgery and after i got to the wimbledon final i don't know many who have done that venus had a severe strain she had the same injury but i didn't tear it the way she did and she says look she played a player who played it you know out of her mind and venus made some errors that she probably shouldn't have uh but you know in general she says to be in some situations that we've been placed in in the past little over a year uh it's not easy to come out and just perform at your best when you realize there are so many things that are so important so no we're not declining we're here i don't have to win this tournament to prove anything i know that i'm out here and i'm the that and i know that i'm one of the best players out here and it was defiant yeah absolutely defiant and and you see that from serena in this match you see this sort of tour slipping away from her people are writing her off and with, you know, some reason, and we talked about, like, you'd say, yeah, yeah, she's 23, she should be in her prime. But, like, if you look at women's tennis back then, like, careers were short. People had, you know, since Steffi Graf, really, post-Steffi Graf, people made early splashes and then kind of faded out. Martina Hingis, who was the sort of dominant player before Serena in a lot of ways, who she overlapped with more, won five Grand Slams. But she won her final Grand Slam when she was 18. And she was out of the sport by the time she was uh 21-ish, something like that, for, for her first iteration of her career. Lindsay Davenport had won three Grand Slams for that time, but she was already done, too. She was uh, won her last one in 2000, and she would get back to number one in 05. I think she was the top seed at this tournament, the 05 Australian Open, and she would play Serena in the final. Later on, spoiler for this match. But <laughs> uh, but she um, you know, but she was done winning Grand Slams, too. Uh, 
even like on the men's side, Andy Roddick had already won his last Grand Slam huh. in 05 Australia. Leighton Hewitt had already won his last Grand Slam. This would be Murat Safin's last Grand Slam. Juan Carlos Ferrero, who was in the mix as a top player that had already won his last Grand Slam. Agassi had already won his last Grand Slam. But there are a lot of players, you know, when, especially if the media is being more aggressive about writing people off, and I think people have cooled down on this, really, in the more recent, at least in my time in the sport, was not as uh, a thing that we do as much as actively. Um, but, you know, people were sort of ultra circle. There was all sorts of reason to think that the Williamses were showing signs that they were, uh, you know, there was blood in the water, I guess, or to mix metaphors of predatory animals, because vultures don't really go in the water that much. But, uh, you know, yeah, it was, uh, I think it was fair to say that, like, Serena could have seen this being very high stakes. Like, there was, especially with Sharapova being someone who she lost to two times in a row, uh, and that Grand Slam final, it was a huge story, that 04 Wimbledon final, really. I think you can't really overstate what a shock that was and what a star-making moment that was. Uh, and... So yes, yeah, so Serena was up against it and motivated, and you really see that come out in the uh, crunch moments of this this match. Absolutely, and to get to the flip side, because you know uh, you already said it, Serena had come off the Serena Slam, but it was not the same Serena Williams post surgery, at least up to this point. That was the same as the Serena beforehand. Now you talked about Wimbledon 04. That's a perfect way for us to get into the Maria Sharapova side of things, because you look at Maria in 2004, and the obvious thing that sticks out is yes, of course she went on uh, to win Wimbledon that year, and what that did for her career, what that did in terms of her trajectory, it got her on the path so immediately. But you look down the home stretch of 2004, you know, at the U.S. or not the U.S. Open, excuse me, uh, post U.S. Open, she ends up winning uh, in Korea. She ends up winning in Tokyo. I think she makes a final in Zurich. Uh, She loses in the semis of Philadelphia. And then, as you mentioned, she goes on to win the year end finals. She beats Kuznetsova. She beats Serena. She uh, beats Zvonarea Miskina. And she finds herself inside the uh, WTA top 10 at this point. Coming into this tournament, she was number four. Uh, you look at her Russian generation again, it's Miskina, Sharapova, Kuznetsova in the three through five positions, Dementieva number six. And it's so fascinating to me because I, again, I'm asking for perspective. The 2004 Russian Fed Cup team, they go on to win. Maria Sharapova is not on that Fed Cup roster. She doesn't play any matches, at least in that, in that sequence of events. Was that unexpected at that point? Well, she didn't make the team. She wasn't one of the highest ranked players. I mean, like it was, I think she was open to playing. I think if I remember she didn't play the Olympics either in 04, which she had just, and that was a bit of a, controversial because she was like the new golden girl of the sport i think a lot of marketers certainly and promoters of the sport really wanted the wimbledon champion in the olympics but um i, I don't remember the criteria stricter or she just wasn't even top four russian at that point not 100 sure she must have been top four i would think eh, but i'm not 100 sure so if i remember correctly, she did not play 04 olympics and yeah it was it was really a russian takeover and it was ovas everywhere in the sport which people were joking about all the ovas and keeping track of all the different ovas there were that was like a novelty thing um but yeah but sharapova was there and she was uh seen as really as a as a force and you know she's a 17 year old she's you see you're you've been around obviously for all the rise of coco golf um and sharapova had some layer of that she didn't have the feel-good story that coco golf had wasn't really a feel-good story but it was this like wow like she is this one's one to watch out for she's pretty special and, and she won a grand slam at 17 and had been known as a factor uh, on tour since the time she was, uh, you know, 11 or 12, she'd already been groomed by IMG and was getting uh, people who agents and people who were sort of saw her in the pipeline for sure. 
Yeah, and you mentioned it. She was the it girl. Uh, there is this huge Kornikova craze, and then you know Sharapova comes out. She ends up winning the Wimbledon right away, and that just sets off a, hu- a whole chain of celebrity uh, celebridom. Is that the term for that? Of just you know celebrity. Yeah, celebrity, I suppose. Um, and, you know, she obviously carried that success through the end of 2004, comes into this Australian Open uh, in good form. And I know she played a couple of three-set matches in the lead-up to the semifinals. And, uh, you know, let's get to there and how these players got to this point of the tournament. You look for Sharapova, a big win for her in her career, especially given some of the rivalry uh, between this Russian generation. She knocks off Kuznetsova in three sets in the quarterfinals. You know, before that for Sharapova, it had been a fairly straight, uh, you know, fairly straightforward, dominant second and third set performances for her uh, through in, in the second round, in the fourth round, in the match. Matches she was pushed, uh, but for her, she, I mean, she came into the semifinal in excellent form. And for Serena, you look at who she played to get to this point. She had knocked off the number two seed Emily Moresmo two and two, and that was a really good performance, especially against that Moresmo for Serena. She had dropped one set in the fourth round against Petrova, but other than that, had fairly. And you mentioned again, it's the generation Ova, uh, uh, another one in the mix there. And I think that might have actually been the f- fourth highest ranked Russian at the time of the Olympics. Uh, just a random tidbit there. But yeah, you know, for both these players, they came into the semifinals in good form. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, Kuznetsova Sharapova was a big quarterfinal. That was the two most recent major winners because Kuznetsova had won the 04 US Open. So that was seen as a pretty blockbuster match, and that was tough. And yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, this was really the match, even if it was number four versus number seven. Um, and Serena was number seven. I believe I've heard them say at the broadcast that she was the betting favorite coming into this tournament, which I'm not, uh, I, I, I surprised me a little bit, honestly, but I guess she was. Um, yeah, but still at number seven, that's typical kind of Serena. It doesn't matter what she's ranked. And I guess even in 05, she was still getting some of that deference, even though a lot of the people who were the experts of the sport uh, thought that, yeah, thought that her time was, you know, things were trending bad for Serena. This is how I know we both watched the same clip and watched it both today is because we both remember that exact quote. Yeah, from uh, Dick Enberg. Uh, and yeah, that he, she was the betting favorite. But you talked about the career head-to-head, and this will be the last piece before we get into the match because you got to set the scene before you get into a match like this. Sharapova, Serena. Uh, Sharapova had won the last two. I think they showed off a list. It was like Venus, Hingis, Capriati, and then just Sharapova as players who had won multiple or who had won multiple matches in a row. Maybe it was three in a row against Serena. That's what Sharapova was trying to do. Uh, but for people who don't realize, because it was a three-set final, and I know that's significant, it being a year-end final that Sharapova won, but that Wimbledon final win over Serena, how surprising was that in the context of the moment? Look, as a 17-year-old watching at home at breakfast <laughs> Wimbledon, I was very surprised. No, really, because Serena was the number one. Although she was number one seed, I think she was only ranked like number 10. I think she got her seeding bumped by Wimbledon that year because she was coming off her surgery. Her ranking had fallen. Uh, but she had won Wimbledon two years in a row. Uh, Williamses had won Wimbledon four years in a row combined. It was really their turf. And Sharapova had sort of announced her way through this tournament. She'd become the story of the tournament. Uh, she had beaten Aisugiyama. I don't remember Aisugiyama. It was a very fun Japanese player in the quarters. A great three-set quarterfinal beat Lindsay Davenport in a come-from-behind semifinal at Wimbledon that year. And then and then she just blitzed Serena. I mean, like, Serena, yeah, she beat her 6-1 in the first set. Serena got up a break 4-2 in the second. And then Sharapova railed off uh, four straight games to win the match 6-1, 6-4. And, yeah, it was one of those matches that was just sort of 
like you can't have a best of three sometimes if it's if it's quick it can be quick and at Wimbledon this was a quick match it was probably barely over an hour and it was really just like a seismic thing that the Williams had been kind of felled by this player who was already getting hype and so a little bit kind of the same thing you saw in 2018 with Osaka beating Serena although that one obviously was more about the controversy in that match this was this one comparatively was seen as a pretty clean kill like this was this was Sharapova coming in and just really seizing this tournament, seizing the sport, and you know it was uh, really really did launch her. And yeah, and the and the Williams is starting game talked about like has been to that point. And she had you know had a couple uncharacteristic losses. She lost at the other two Grand Slams she played that year. I don't think she played Australia in 04. Um, she played uh, lost in French Open and U.S. Open to Jennifer Capriati, uh, who was a player who she usually had the better of, but was also in the mix. So just like things were not trending particularly well for for Serena. Yeah, no, without question. And that gets us to the match because you get at the start of this one and it was all Maria Sharapova. And I, you know, I was waiting to save my takes on her game at this point because right off the bat, young Maria, pre any injury, she's at her healthiest, she's at her freshest. She is just such a phenomenal athlete, and for her size, 6'1", 6'2", for her to move and leverage her length and just how consistent she was, how good she was on the serve, this first set, she comes out hot, and Serena does not come out well, and, you know, that's uh, the second half of the story, but from on the first half, when you look at Maria Sharapova's performance through this first set, I mean, was this her level of play? Was this how she was through the start of 04? Because it is just exceptional. No, she was really good. And this is the thing that I think people lose sight of. And this gets into a little bit of career retrospective and Meldonium conversations come up later. This is a pre-Meld... <laughs> no, but seriously, this was a pre-Meldonium match. And like early Sharapova, when she was... When the body was still holding together, she was so good. The serve was a real weapon. Very, very live arm. Loose things. Very clean technique off both wings. Had those Robert Landstorp ground strokes at Lindsay Davenport and others. Uh, Tracy Austin and uh, some other guy, too. I have, so you can look it up who Landstorp people are. But, like, they – she got those same kind of strokes. She was very, very solid and just seen as being kind of a marvel. And this is – she was so much better. And watching this again, she was such a better player when she was young than when she, you know, got – when she was winning French Opens, let's say. That, then she became a real gritty fighter, just, like, grinding people out. But back then, she was just blasting people off the court, and her weapons were really huge, and she was a very imposing, overwhelming player. And Serena had had problems with her in their, in their last match. I mean, she really did blow her off the court at Wimbledon. And I also like the early tidbit in this match. They were saying that Serena had requested requested uh, tapes of Sharapova's earlier matches for scouting, which is not a very Williamsy thing to do. Um, and I'm sure Serena didn't love that was reported, but it shows you how seriously... Uh, Serena was taking the challenge of Sharapova. It was not a player who she really felt comfortable against, or she felt like she had figured out at this point. Yeah, so I think we do have to get into the commentators now, because on that point, like, their fascination, and they called it videotapes, which is really just the quintessential. That's just a great term. Uh, I miss videotapes. I miss the VCR. Yeah, no, they were VHS, for sure. Again, Mary Carrillo, Dick Enberg, Pam Shriver on the call in this match. Three of the best in the business. You know, rest in peace, of course, to Dick Enberg. And they're going to take slack in this podcast, at least from my end. That is not to indict them as commentators. I just want to make clear. Overall, huge fans of all three of them in general. But this match, it did not age well. And the reason I want to get into this now is because, yes, they were quite complimentary of, you know, of Sharapova. But it was the exact opposite for Serena. I think Mary Carrillo, when said, there's some exchange where she said, I'm glad Serena's watching tape, but I wish she would watch tape on herself. And she outright calls Serena's forehand technique 
bad. She criticizes Venus's serve and forehand technique as bad. She criticizes uh, the Williams parents for their stubbornness as coaches, and that's a little bit of paraphrasing, but that was the general consensus. And to be, there was also, by the way, Margaret Courts in the arena, and we don't have to touch that now. But you know, that that was crazy to see. Yeah, I was just like, this is unbelievable. But to the point, it speaks to how different the the surrounding or the environment around Serena was. The narrative was, and you know, to a point, because in this first set, what's exposed maybe more than anything is just how poor Serena was hitting her forehand through the first set. There was no confidence. There was no rhythm. Nowadays, her serve and forehand might be what made her the most dominant player in women's tennis from 2010 to 2015. Of course, her mental prowess, her just never-say-die attitude, her big match chops, all those things as well. But to go back in time to 2005 and see her struggle on the forehand, see her struggle with the unforced air, see Maria Sharapova rocking a prince racket, it was just, it was a lot to handle. It was a lot to handle. Um, to your point, so to get to the commentator thing you were saying, you were saying you were surprised at how much they were kind of trashing uh, Serena's forehand technique and stuff, but now you're just saying how bad Serena's forehand was. So you think they were right? Like all the things they were saying? I mean, that's the, that's the thing, because like, Again, the hindsight, you have to sort of put yourself in this situation where you don't know that Serena turns out to be a goat, that she's that she's really going to be in the, that, the, first of all, that Margaret Court will be just relevant to her life, um, but that she will be there getting 23 slams, because right now she has, I think, six at this point uh, in, the, in this match. And so that's a, that's a nice number. That's a Hall of Fame lock number for sure, but she was not in a goat conversation, really. She wasn't a one-namer yet. She was still Serena Williams, not just Serena. Well, she was S period Williams on the scoreboard, technically, but, but yeah, I think, I think, no, but I, I, I do think that there were real, you know, it's one of those things with the Williamses. They had got a lot of skepticism early in their careers because they did not come through a traditional tennis pipeline. They were not really, uh, they were not, even though they had worked with a lot of experienced coaches like Rick Macy and Balateri a little bit, uh, they were not traveling them full time, certainly not citing them as being creators of their game. They were giving all the credit to their parents. And yeah, and so when things did break down in their games and it really was Venus more, and Serena, who had the more technical issues in her game, um, people would sort of say, like, you know, like they need more help, or this is like the, the coaches are not helping them out with these things that these, you know, former tennis players and greats like Pam Shriver were saying were like glaring weaknesses in their games. Uh, so I think that was, you know, kind of fair. Was it as bad as it made it out to be? <sighs> Debatable. But at the same time, you know, Serena was down a set and a break in this match, and Sharapova served for what would have been would have been a pretty straightforward win in this match. Yeah. So this could have been a pretty lopsided loss for Serena before she turned it around. I'm already excited we have you on because I'm glad you pushed me on that point. I would say you're right. There was an abundance of hyperbole. It was it wasn't that bad. I didn't see a fundamental technique flaw, which is sometimes I think what was the message that was accentuated, and I, I think that was a little unfair. Now in this match in particular, Serena's body's all over the place. She's falling back on almost each and every forehand, and maybe the biggest adjustment she's made in her career is her tactical, you know, her idea of stepping forward inside the baseline, playing balls early, taking time away from her opponents by keeping her momentum moving forward. That's obviously what's made her the aggressive player she is today. And she wasn't doing that in this match, but 
I don't know how much her bad play was a symptom of Serena's struggles or just a symptom of how well Maria Sharapova was playing. I mean, again, to get back to the movement, there's a there's a point. It's 5-1. It's the love-all point uh, in the first set, and it's a point Sharapova loses, but she's, or I think it was 40-love, excuse me, 30-love, 4-40-love, and she's on the run, and she's stretched, and it's maybe one of the first times she had done it where she goes to the left hand, and she plays the left-handed forehand on the run. And it's an exceptional point. And it's just one of those, the athleticism, the fact that she does have the firepower. She reminds me of what I, in my mind, I see Alex Zverev doing on the court when he's at his best. It's just the length, the leverage, the pop out of the corners. They can just move and hit the ball in different ways than I had seen. And I just think, you know, uh, one of the things when you look back in time, you want to compare the tennis then to now, you could plop 18-year-old Maria Sharapova into today's game. And I think even, you know, give her a new racket and she competes right away and I can't say that about a lot of other players and their games from the past oh this is a whole different discussion you're scratching out there but (laughs) no but seriously whether or not women's tennis is better back then or not because that is a real topic I've had uh, with people before going back and watching some old matches uh from you know 20 years ago um yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I, do we want to think... do that now? Because I had that thought. I was running, and I was like, do I want to ask Ben this? He might yell at me. It might be a bad question. Um, but there's a case. There's a case. I mean, like, I do think there was something about the players who were peaking 20 and 15 years ago who were both really fast and really powerful in this way that lately you kind of get one or the other. And the Williamses, Capriati, early Sharapova, Kleisters, they all had like both of those columns very much filled out. They were great movers and could hit the crap out of the ball. And and in two actually hit the ball pretty damn hard herself. Uh Davenport wasn't much of a mover. Hingis didn't hit the ball very hard. But for the most part, like they people had very complete games and they were really, really good athletes. Now what you did not have back then when tennis was depth. Like you did not have those really good players outside the top twenty. That's what you do have now. Um but yeah, the 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 it's a it's a it's a longer discussion but i do think assuming that everything that people are the tennis is better now because it's later it might be more physical and the other issue i think with women's tennis in particular i think women's tennis has been hurt by the men slowing down the court so much which the men you know that's been done for men's tennis purposes and women have been kind of collateral damage in it i think women's tennis had no problem being on these fast courts of that era and while the men were getting probably were not getting many rallies and so when they slowed down the men's game by making courts slower and the women's game got to be less attractive in a lot of ways. And, you know, at, at times, I think it's that's sort of short version of my long, you know, we, we I've had this conversation with people before. It's sort of a, a delicate or tricky topic, say, whether that's sports going forward or backwards or what's changing in this. But I do think I do think the court speed uh, helps this era of women's tennis a lot. Well, I, I do want to say as a disclaimer, the reason why I think it's it, I don't think the tennis has gotten worse for, for um, the women's tour. I agree. The depth has gotten better. I think the average player has certainly gotten better. And as you mentioned, there's the Donna Vekic's of the world who could come out and win an event because she's playing well. And maybe that didn't exist as much before. Yeah. But you also have to remember there's this confluence of seven, eight 
all-time generational players reaching their peaks or at their peaks in this time period, and that has to be factored in, that you have a Sharapova, that you have a Serena, you have still a very good Davenport, a really good Svetlana Kuznetsova, and at her best, Amelie Moresmo, and at her best, Justine Ennin. Those are all all-time greats. So that's not meant to be you know disrespectful to the current generation. That speaks to, as you mentioned, the strength at the top of the women's game during this time period. That would be my perspective, is that and we have a lot, you know, you could argue the same sort of generational shift that happened in 05 is sort of happening in 2020 with the emergence of Osaka and Drescu, Kennan and Benchich and uh, Sabalenka, and you could go on and on and on. I'm optimistic. I, I'm not saying yeah. that I'm saying it's bad now. Yeah. I'm just saying there was something about, uh, yeah, something about this time. It's something, and I do think the conditions had a little bit to do with it. I do think. There's more aggressive play, less sort of, not just sort of a little bit less physical. There's more physicality in women's tennis now, uh, more emphasis on sort of strength and having, you know, solid core or whatever, which I, you know, it sounds good, but I don't know if it actually makes tennis better. And like, gosh, like these, like, if you, especially like even like year end championships, this is, this is a tangent, but like the year end championships that Serena and Sharapova played, if you can find that match, that was a fast court. That was like a carpet court in 04. Uh, at the stable center and now like the wta has this like slow as hell court they played their year in championships on in singapore and now in shenzhen and that's not good that's not like that's not nice <laughs> so so it was it used to be very very different looking sport and i think that women's tennis was particularly suited by having fast courts in the way that yeah. men's tennis wasn't so different oh, topic that- no, that the, the reason we could afford to go on a tangent in set one is because, with all due respect, it just wasn't that high of a level of tennis because Sharapova dominated Serena, and that was the story coming out of set one, right? I guess and your final thoughts on this set because Serena, I don't think, got a break point. She got broken to go down 2-1 at the beginning of the set. She got immediately broken again for 4-1, or for 3-1 maybe. I think there was an opportunity for her almost to break back for 4-1. Sharapova dealt with it fairly quickly, and again, for her, it was the down the lines, the cross courts, just making that extra ball there were a couple of on the run passes as well a dominant first set from maria right yeah i mean just one quote that i wrote down that stuck out to me uh it's some uh carillo says that there's nothing shy about this kid in reference to sharapova and enberg responds with there's no governor on her game which is a <laughs> baffling phrase i have no idea what that means but i really enjoyed it Oh, I I have some quotes in here from like okay again for Enberg. There's a lot of grunting talk and a lot of what are they doing and the squealing and that's that's a little problematic. Well, this is the Sherpa being new and Sherpa was the first real like shrieker on tour. Uh, now you're used to it having Sherpa been around for so long and Azarenka also uh, being in this mix as well. But yeah, and I also noticed that at the beginning of the match Sherpa was not being making any noise, kind of ramped into it, and then at some point they talk about it a lot in the third set when she stops doing it at times, like <gasps> she stopped grunting. Is she herself anymore? And like it, it was. And if you watch the '04 Wimbledon final, she's pretty quiet in the first set of that match as well, if I recall correctly. And uh, yeah, it was not as consistent a thing. And, you know, especially now that she's retired, I can say, like, the grunt was terrible. Like, it should not have happened. It should not have been allowed. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I hope that whenever tennis comes back, I hope everybody, and honestly, if they want to do this as a side project to create some news, like, why not? Just ban grunting during this hiatus and <laughs> be done with it, honestly. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, I think it was Carilla who said Sharapova gets mad at her box when their energy drops as well. And so, you know, it's something that it wasn't just her. It was a strategy of her camp to keep their energy up to, even if it gets in your opponent's head and diminishes their play by 1%, that extra 1% could be all the difference. So it was targeted. 
Uh, with the grunting thing, I will say my concern is not so much for the opponent; it's for the TV audience. I think it's just an annoying. Honestly, at rewatching this match, um, and I was listening to it more than I was watching because it it's pretty low res video. But uh, watching it again, just like when I was not paying attention, when you're sort of doing something else or looking at something else, and you just hear this screaming, it's like, oh, shut up! Like you're just making. So honestly, it's just not a pleasant noise to have to hear, whether it's men or women grunting. I think often, although women have higher pitches, and that's unfair to them, and it gets more grating. But uh, yeah, I, I I think that grunting. I and as somebody who that does not personally bother me, but I know how many people it really does bother, and I do think it is a valid complaint. And I think the tours tours plural should have done something about it a while ago. But yeah. 15 years later, here we are still the same. Although it's not a lot, yeah. of, not a ton of grunting right now. Some, some, but uh, not a ton. No, mix and match for sure. I think it's it's just more tame. At this point, it sounds like a lot of people exhaling more so than grunts, and I think it's gotten under control. If that makes sense, it's more of a subtle type of thing. I think there's still a few players who do it like really loud. Like Mukarutsa is very loud, and Allison Risk is very loud as a grunter. She's got a loud grunter, which I always forget. For me, there's not many American grunters, so she always kind of catches me off guard. But she's got a definite grunt. Um, yeah. Can I just say you're you know you're qualified for podcast. This is why you're the hottest ticket in podcasting right now is because you have an off the head list of loudest grunters in your head, and you can just pull that from the back of your memory and be like Risk, Muguruza. Sabalenka is obviously. I was going mean, to say go, that's the only on, one you. But, no. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll save that. Yeah. He was always an underratedly loud grunter, and this is one of those ones that because it didn't have the high pitch, it was a deeper grunt. But Skiavoni and Arani could both oh. really. They could, they could really grunt those ladies. Yeah, Schiavone's an all-timer for so many different reasons. Yeah, one of the most entertaining players, someone who I grew up, and that was one of the first players because she was winning her French Opens. I was like, I'm, inter- I- I'm into this. Whatever this is, sign me up. And, you know, again, last two comments from the first set would be, A, Pam Shriver's, like, uh, she's in literally the Outback in Australia outfit. She's got the hat. She's got the button-up shirt. And I say this complimentary. It's spot-on. It's just brilliant. Well, you know, she, well, she was, I think, married to an Aussie at this point, I believe and so she was like australia was her jam mm-hmm. she was she was she was feeling her feeling the fantasy down there as the kids say in australia yeah not quite as great mary carillo's australian accent it could use some work it, it, she needs to workshop it. no no i i love the attempt but it but just needs to be workshop fair, yeah. fair. Uh, i, hope, I uh, think maybe but, in the last 15 years maybe it's gotten better we'll see i'll, I'll have to call her up and ask her to do it <laughs> Exactly. That's a that's a you know six months into quarantine type content uh, is to get her working her Australian accent. But that was set number one. And again, from a tennis standpoint, not the most entertaining set. Let's get to set number two because here's where things really begin to pick up. And it's right off the bat in set number two that Maria Sharapova earns herself an opportunity. I believe it's in the very first service game for uh, of the match for or of the set for Serena that she ends up getting to thirty forty, and it's the patterns that keep emerging. It's you know for Serena, there's uh, second serves and just she's not she, another for, forehand uh, unforced error. And in fact, in this first game, it's a fifteen thirty point, and uh, Serena makes a or I think it's at fifteen all, and Serena makes an un no no this was fifteen thirty or fifteen I, either way. No, it's a little screwed up. Uh, there's a forehand error. Serena gets upset and she spikes a ball into the crowd. And they show Mrs. Williams on the screen afterwards, and she's just shaking her head in disgust. And you can see for Serena that you know she's starting to slip, she's starting to crack. And for her in this moment, she ended up coming up, you know, on the 30-40 point. It's a long rally. Sharapova has the backhand she's looking for, and it's a down-the-line look, and she just misses it long. Or maybe it was wide, as you mentioned, the pixelation not. 
great. Definitely out, though. And it goes back to Deuce. And uh, what I think the theme of this match, because yes, she blows blow, uh, break points in the third, or match points in the third set, but more than anything, she had about three or four chances in this second set where she could have put her foot on Serena's throat. And I know that's not the most glorious of metaphors, but yeah, she had her opportunities and they just sort of slipped away from her. No, completely. There were a couple moments, yeah, where I kept waiting. And Sharapova did get up a break late in the second set, serve four in the match at 5-4. But there were a few times where she let Serena off the hook a little bit. And Serena maybe upped her level sometimes, but there were a few chances that Serena, that, yeah, Sharapova was just not as uh, ruthless as maybe she could have been at times this match. And the focus wasn't totally there. And the, and the overall quality of this match is not always the highest. And this is not a sparkle. This is a match that I remember so fondly, not because of how amazing the tennis was, which is maybe what like people remember another all time great women's match from this same year, which is the Venus Davenport 05 Wimbledon final. Uh, that was just like really, really good tennis in that match and a close match. This one was all about like the intensity of this match and sort of like the stakes and the, and the gutturalness and the rivalry and the, you know, the vying for the crown of being the biggest superstar in, in tennis and, and what it meant for the rivalry later on. The actual tennis here is pretty scratchy at sometimes. And Serena is, uh, her serve particularly goes really in and out, like, I mean, literally in and out, but also uh, just like her, you know, her like sometimes they're just like the speed on her serve. Sometimes she really seems to arm it in just because kind of go. they talk about her going three quarters speed on her serve sometimes. And, yeah, she's just like the point to point intensity is not always, or focus is not always there from Serena. She's kind of there's a lot, a lot of match management going on, let's say charitably. Yeah, and after one all, Pam Shriver says, you know, I, I think Maria is in Sharapova's, or yeah, Maria is in Sharapova's, excuse me. Hey, great shot to me. Maria is in Serena's head. And it, it's a fascinating quote, certainly. And again, given what we know, yeah, you know, at that point, I think it was a 2 1 Sharapova lead in their career head to head. And what we know going forward is jokes on them uh, for that comment. But it really did feel like in the moment that, yeah, that Sharapova had her. Look, I don't. It's what this is. Like, we talk about the commentators here, but like, I will. My instinct is to defend them here because, like, mm-hmm. until Serena saves those match points and wins this match, Sharapova was in her head. Like, it really was this match, and you can. And then 2007 was a whole different issue, which we can hopefully do as an epilogue when we finish. But uh, <laughs> they have, yeah, it, they were not wrong. Like, Serena was tense this match. She looked like fraught in this match. She understood. She was the one requesting VHS cassettes of uh, Sharapova matches. You know, she was up against it in this match. And I think the commentators were maybe getting a little bit carried away with how different directions they were going in. But for most of this match, it looks like Maria's going to win it. And they're talking to that narrative. Yeah, and to get back to the opportunities, I think there's at the one-all game, 30-all, Sharapova misses a second serve return into the net. It hits the tape uh, for 40-30. There's a wide serve and, you know, a nice overhead from Serena to hold there. At two-all, 30-all, again, another second serve that Sharapova has a clean look at. She misses the return in the top of the net. There's another second serve that she misses in the net tape when it's uh, the deuce point for add Serena that Serena ends up holding after with a serve plus one for three two. And then in that 2-3 game in the second set is when I think Serena starts to show her first signs of life. There's a double fault for Love 15, then three sloppy Serena errors. But there's this 15-ball rally that ends up going the way of Serena. And I do think it's in this middle of the second set that you start to see her say, I need to just do something different. Is that fair? Yeah, no, and she's talking to herself frequently. You can kind of hear clips of that. The audio from on court wasn't as good back then. But you can still hear her 
monologuing a bit and just being frustrated and trying to figure things out and not giving up in this match and not as, as much as the score was really kind of one direction towards Sharapova for most of this uh, first two sets. Uh, yeah, like Serena's dug in there and she's, uh, yeah, she's still fighting and, and you see the tenacity and they and you really see it at the end of the match, but you do see signs of the sort of more quiet simmering uh, focus. And I, this is not exactly really by the podcast uh, or video I just did with uh, your buddy, uh, Mr. Gross uh, was talking about the Federer Roddick match from 09. And it's a little bit similar in that they were like, Roddick was especially like really quiet, intense focus in that match. Like, he wasn't very demonstrative. He was really keeping everything close to us, but like the unwavering intensity. Serena's a different kind of animal that way. And she's not, you know, she's much more expressive largely and doesn't keep as many, <laughs> have as much of a poker face as Andy Roddick might at times. But, uh, but yeah, but she was still having, uh, uh, you know, a, a, for her, like a very clear concentration. You could really see that she wasn't getting down on herself. She wasn't breaking rackets. She wasn't, you know, getting, uh, you know, hysterical in any way at all. She was, she was really keeping her head in the game. Well, you know, Ben, here we say cracking rackets, not breaking rackets, but just a minor, yeah, yeah, just a minor uh, technicality there. But I think something that may have woken her up, and this gets back to the call situation from the U.S. Open quarterfinals the year before. It's three all. I think it's uh, the deuce, or maybe it's the 30-40 point, and there's an inside-out forehand from Sharapova, and uh, it, it ends up getting called in, and Serena is not happy about the call at all. And she goes on to hold that game, but but you can see that it got her a little bit ticked off and it got her a little bit frustrated. And I do think that, you know, in that next game, she had chances against Sharapova on serve there. And unfortunately, I do think it started to get in her head. And then all of a sudden, Sharapova just breaks and it's 5-4 and she's serving for the match. And then things just get weird, right, Ben? Well, it was an incredible passing shot for Sharapova to break. She hits this great mm-hmm. backhand cross court that leaves Serena sort of splayed on the ground. Uh, to break for 5-4. Yeah, and then Sharapova, I think, plays a pretty tight service game there. Again, this is another one of those moments, the first real like finish line possibility moment where uh, Sharapova doesn't really totally put the hammer down here. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you there. It was more of a choke than anything else. I mean, she didn't get to match. Choke is a bold word. It was more of a tentative, tight game than anything else, and there were a couple of unforced errors, I believe. You look at you know the pattern there. When you, when you haven't gotten broken all match and you get broken for the first time when you're serving for the match and your player doesn't and your opponent doesn't play lights out that's that's completely on you that's just mental yeah. and obviously it's t- it's tough closing out serena williams in a grand slam i'm not saying it's not but that was a mental mental lapse yeah. for sure. she had faced three break points up to that point and then it, she goes backhand unforced error for love 15 a really nice serena second serve returned for love 30 uh but then a backhand unforced error after a seven ball rally for 15 40 double fault for five all and then Serena just kind of runs away with the rest of the set. Uh, Sharapova doesn't get to game point on her service game at 5-6. It was, you know, a net cord backhand from Serena that sort of threw Sharapova off for 30-40. And then second serve, an inside-out forehand unforced air from Sharapova. All of a sudden, it's 7-5. Highway robbery for Serena to take this match to a third set, right? No, again, because this match had not felt close. Like, I mean, it really had felt like Sharapova was in control, was the better player and Serena was hanging on. And yeah, and Serena hung tough and got it got a look at 5-4, got her opponent blinked and and she she pounced on that. She she took advantage and yeah, suddenly we're in a third set. And there's a they don't show the video, but there's a decently long like bathroom heat break. It was a hot day also, I should say in Australia. It's not something 
it's debated. Or some people were saying it was hot. The commentary really wasn't that hot, but they're indoors, so what do they know? Um, but I think <laughs> it was. No, but seriously, also that this is before your time, but that green surface uh, which they used to have. Well, it's it was also it was also made, if I remember correctly, of like cycled car tires or oh. something. This rebound ace, and so it got like really hot and sticky and like radiated a lot of heat. Players hated that surface. It's also really ugly color green. Um, so good riddance to the uh, the green acridly green courts of the Australian Open, yeah. which died. That means 2007 was their last year. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we get ourselves into the third set. And right off the bat, you want to talk about uh, the mindset for both of these players. They exchange breaks right away. Serena gets broken after just a sloppy game. I think it was three unforced errors from her. And, uh, you know, I think at the end, Sharapova hits a nice uh, cross-court backhand on the run passing shot for 1-0. But then Maria just plays such a sloppy game uh, back on the love 30 points. She tried to serve and volley, and that went nowhere, and it went to love 40. And all of a sudden, they're back at one all. And again, at this point, you sort of start to see how tentative Maria Sharapova gets as this match go along. And, you know, uh, I've complimented them so many times, but TennisAbstract.com has the best match uh, reviews and the best, uh, you know, breakdown of the stats from so many matches. And you start to look at the stats from this one. In total, Maria Sharapova, 22 winners against 53 unforced errors. This is Alex Gruskin math, but if I had to get, and as you learned, Ben, I was really good at math in 2005, so that logic applies here. I would say probably 30 plus of those unforced errors come starting, you know, three all in that second set onwards. And it really was more, you know, it's a credit to Serena that she continued to fight, that she continued to find chances. But Maria's level takes a considerable dip, in my opinion, in this third. No, it's one of those things that also shows you it's an interesting sort of competitive moment because they dip together. Like mm-hmm. from this point on in the match, like their intensity and their quality stays pretty close to each other the whole rest of the way. And there are a couple, like, obviously there's a few breaks down the road and some save match points and stuff, but like, they're kind of like synced up here. And when one starts playing worse, the other matches up by playing worse, it brings him, brings her down to her level. And then when one picks it up, the other one picks it up and they really, yeah, it's kind of a slog for the first six, seven games of this third set. And then, and then, yeah, and then Sharapova gets up a break uh, and things get real intense real fast. And, yeah. and then the quality picks up very fast. You mentioned this. It's not exactly the prettiest match to uh, watch. And, you know, there were 225 points total played. If I had to ask you, Ben, how many rallies, what percentage of the match exceeded six shots? What do you think the answer is? Out of 225, how many points exceeded six you, shots? You don't have to give me a point. You can give me a percentage, too. Oh, I'd say like five. Yeah. So... You know, honestly, I was surprised here. 17% of the points went over six rallies, but, you know, they had to have just been seven shots because these were choppy points. The majority of them was either... Yeah, it was serve plus one, it was an unforced error, it was a quick pass or a big down the line from these players. They were decisive. And to Serena's credit, and this is something I think Mary and, and Pat hit, uh, Pam, excuse me, hit spot on in their play-by-play call. Serena was at her best even when she was missing, when she was on top of the baseline, when she was taking balls early, being aggressive in the biggest moments. And you talk about why this is such a pivotal match in tennis's history. She turns to an aggressive stance when she's down, when her back is against the wall and it works and the sort of confidence you gain from that i can only imagine no absolutely no so this for the comp this is one of the serena myth making matches like we talk about serena was not this invincible force that people associate her being 10 years after this uh 
without this match. Like this is one of those matches where she really pulled herself off the carpet, beats a player who was playing better than her, who was you know ranked ahead of her, who was getting more attention than her, was better thought of you know by experts at this point than her. Um, and she it changes both their careers a lot. Like this is a match that Serena can draw from forever. And she had a couple before this. I mean, the main one that sticks out is uh, 2003 Australian Open. She played Kleisters, and they mentioned this in the commentary, but she played Kleisters and was down 5-1 in the third set in the semifinals and reeled off six straight games to win that. Although Kleisters is a much less proven commodity, hadn't won a Grand Slam yet back then. Uh, although the crowd was so for Kleisters in that match. It was a very hostile crowd that Serena, or very partisan crowd, I should say, that Serena had to face down. The match because Kleisters was, I think, engaged to Leighton Hugh back then, so she was at peak Aussie Kim, and she was like an honorary Aussie. It's a weird time, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, the uh, Serena, yeah, had not was you know had been known for being a fighter, but also was more recently known for these losses and for taking weird losses to Capriati and you know losing tight matches and getting blown out by Sharapova. So like this is really you know Serena becomes Serena as she refers to herself in third person with <laughs> matches like this. Like this is what makes her, and also. Uh, to get this is getting a little bit in the future, but this is also what takes a lot of the wind out of the sails of Sharapova. I mean, Sharapova did not win another slam uh, for, you know, she loses, I guess, the next six slams as well. Like, she gets close a lot, but she starts having real problems closing out slams uh, that last for the rest of 05 and for much of 06. And, yeah, this was a very pivotal match, and it, so it really kind of kept Serena with a foot in this, and we can talk about Serena afterwards. Serena did not have a good 05 after this, but uh, anyway, we're getting kind of a little ahead of ourselves, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's not your fault at all. But, uh, but yeah, it's, but it, but it, but it, no, but you're, it is an important match for Serena that way. This is like a vintage, vintage back against the wall, playing her best match. And it's one of the ones that other players know about, that they take notice of that she knows, and it really does do a lot of myth building. Yeah, and you go to the three-all game here where Maria Sharapova gets her break. And, you know, just to set the scene for how we got to match points, how Maria Sharapova had her opportunities. Uh, in terms of three-all, two big serves from Serena to get to 30-love. And she looks in control of the game. Looks like we're going to stay on serve. But then Sharapova really does step up her level. It's the Sharapova we saw from the first set. She hits a huge inside-in backhand return to draw an error. Uh, it's 15th. Or, or I think it was, yeah, then for 35th. Then it's an, another forehand error for Serena, 30-all. There's a 16-shot rally after that that ends with a Sharapova net core just like trickles over the net for a winner for 30-40. And then she punishes a second serve return, and just like that, she's up a break, 4-3 serving. She hits this ridiculous lob at 4-3, 30-love, and I believe ends up holding at love, 4-5-3. And in that moment, you think to yourself, okay, now Sharapova's asserted herself. There was a little bit of dip. She got a little bit nervous, but here's where she once again shows how great of a champion she's about to become. And then that 5-4 game just gets weird. And again, there, there are three match points for Sharapova serving for this. I think it was the 40-30. She had the four, uh, the first three game points of the game. It was 40-30. It was uh, you know the add-in after deuce one, the add-in after deuce two, or add-out or whatever it was. Um, and just or add-in. And I, I don't know. For me, I had only one blown opportunity. I said on the 40-30 point, 
uh, Sharapova overcranked a cross-court forehand, and that got her to deuce. And I thought that was one where if she could play that back, she maybe takes a little bit off that. But that's how she got to that point. And I just think this is, again, where Serena stepped up. And I, I don't know if there was, you know, there was that inside-in or inside-out forehand winner she hits during a 10-ball rally to get to deuce, and that eventually uh, gets her to the game point, and then she wins the game. That was on the third match point. I thought Serena stepped up her level. I don't necessarily think, as opposed to that horrible service game 5-4 in the second set, this game was more a testament to Serena uh, raising her level. No, completely. And the kind of shots that she was hitting to save the second and third match points with inside-out forehands were not like very typical sort of Serena shots. It's like coming in, coming in behind the ball, taking time away, doing things she hadn't been doing in the match, and changing up her patterns. Like That was really where like Serena clearly clicks into some sort of god mode and just like knows what to do and everything's becomes clear and that's the championly moment one of the big moments for a career that i always come back to is that game for serena and yeah and even the first match point serena played pretty good it was a good first serve that sharpova landed in that in that 40 30 point and serena sends it off and kept extending a little bit and sharpova kept going forward and eventually missed the missed the forehand a bit long and uh yeah i don't think sharpova played this game badly she she got herself three match points she hit big uh, first serves into the deuce court to keep setting up more and more chances. And yeah, even after this, um, you know, she doesn't not like she goes away like she did a little bit in the second set. She keeps the she holds her next service game to get to six all skipping ahead a little bit. But so she's not out of it. She doesn't totally collapse here the way that she might have and the way that a lot of other players have against Serena. Um, she still stays in it in Serena, but Serena is at this point here and you start seeing the commentators go back to them their tune changes very quickly on like mm-hmm. with the kind of serena now they're suddenly all over serena now and serena's best that she ever was and vintage serena's and great to see her back like this and i think that's not you know that is obviously a bit fair weathering by them they're kind of going with the front runner at any given time but yeah, that what was happening i mean like serena really really asserted herself and arrived to this match at 5-4 in the third in a lot of ways. No, absolutely. And look, you talked about it. Sharapova still had chances after she got broken back uh, for 6-all. In that 6-all game she had, with Serena serving, she had, I believe, three different break points. She had her chances, and you look at what happened on all of them. It was, again, Serena coming up with the big shots. You look at what she was able to do uh, on the 30-40 point. It's a wide serve, cross-court forehand, overhead winner, deuce. Then it's a wide serve inside in forehand winner for Deuce. Then there's this 11 shot rally that ends in a Sharapova forehand down the line unforced error. And again, that's one of those things where she had a chance. That's probably the one she kicks herself over. But then it's a serve volley cross court drop volley combo serve plus a forehand that draws an error. It's 7 6 Serena. And then we get to the 7 6 game. And from there, that one hurt. That one was where it was just like, I, I don't know exactly what happened there. I, I don't think it was, you know, anything in particular Sharapova did wrong. But for me, the most memorable moment of this match, the most rewatchable moment of this match, if I can say, was 100% the 1530 point. Serena tracks down a couple of big forehands from Maria. She gets uh, Maria to hit a drop backhand volley, which she was anticipating the entire time. She passes him down the line. And then there's the squat cheer that I think has become so synonymous with Serena's success. That's the moment to me what was your most memorable moment and what you know down the home stretch 
completely that that is the iconic moment that gets sort of shown in in clips of this match. Then obviously she wins the match point. She's leaping up in the air and she's very happy. And Orisine, her mother, who's usually very stoic, has this like big reaction to this win too. She could tell how much this meant to her her daughter to beat Sharapova, who had been this big, you know, disruptive force in, in Williams. Uh, claim to the throne of the sport so uh yeah so that was those two things together were uh were pretty big for sure and and yeah you just see like in and serena kind of gaining her confidence once she gets ahead in the score for the first time like since one love in the first set you know she uh she does finish it off relatively well Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess, you know, in terms of this is the home stretch of the match, Serena wins it. And it's, you know, it's not a final. It's a semifinal. And for her, she has to come back and she plays a three-set match against Capriati. But you look at, you know, again, how this match concluded in. Oh, Davenport, excuse me. And you look at how this match concluded and just what it meant to Serena. What are your final takeaways from this one in particular and what it meant to Serena as well? No, look, I really do think this was sort of like a sliding doors moment in tennis. It had this match gone differently, really could have changed the trajectory of uh, who was the best at that time, but also, just as importantly, this Sharapova-Serena rivalry. Uh, and I do use that word for their for their head-to-head uh, because that was a defining thing of what would happen in the next, you know, uh, 12 years in tennis. Like, they were really, st- still were from this point on kind of the two alphas of the sport. Venus was in there occasionally, uh, Hennen was still around a little bit. Kleisters would have her moments, uh, but really, it was those two who were still sort of the biggest public figures. The the two who had the clearest uh, differences between them had the you know didn't get along all that well. They got along better back then. Uh, there wasn't as much early beef as there was later on in their careers, and maybe even currently still. But yeah, but they uh, but this was a big match, and then yeah, and then they don't play again for two years until the '07 Australian Open final which is a really, and people debate which one is more important to the rivalry and what happened and what happened, we haven't mentioned really here, is that Serena never lost to Sharapova again. That she won, I think, in the end 18 in a row, I want to say. I forget what the final score was, uh, ending with the 2019 US Open first round match, which that draw had to be rigged, let's be clear. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, but uh, but yeah, but they keep, they. But Serena comes out in the 07, uh, what, what, Australian Open final, she's ranked 81st in the world. Sharapova is the number one seed, and Serena just clobbers her. It's uh, up, goes up five love very, very fast in the first set, wins the match, I think, one and three or one and two, I can't remember, uh, in the end, and it is just not close at all. And that, and that was sort of a, a knockout blow in the rivalry. And I don't know if that comes without this longer, more harder in victory in 05. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. For Sharapova, you sort of alluded to it, but to get back to that point, what was the impact, in your opinion, of this result on her, her mindset, not only against Serena, but just in the immediate aftermath? I think it puts some doubts in her mind, for sure. I mean, just going back, like, going ahead, so 05, excuse me, 05 Wimbledon, she gets to the semifinals and loses a tight match to Venus Williams, uh, which is another great match, actually. It's a 6-1, and one, I think, was that match. And she plays it really, really well, but just gets beaten by a, a peak Williams again, and that had to be tough for her. She makes semis again in 05 U.S. Open, loses to Kleisters, I believe, in that match. 06 Australian Open, she makes semis again, loses to Justine Ennin in the semis. Uh, 06 Wimbledon, she makes semis again, loses to Moresmo. So she has this like kind of like she hits the semifinal 
wall, people online started calling her semi-pova and stuff, and she was, you know, known as not being able to go all the way. And those sort of issues track to her not being able to close up this match against Serena. And uh, that was what really did, because she was, I think, I think she would have been, it's tough to know if she would have beaten that important in the final. I think she probably would have. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but then she would have won two last three grand slams and her career gets up to a much steeper trajectory than it ultimately did where she kind of, for a while was winning a grand slam, like every two years and then yeah. gets five total. But I think had she won this match, she could have easily been on a pace for something more like 10. Yeah, no, I, I think that's completely fair. Certainly, you know, it, it given that she stole one in 2012 she stole another one in 2014 those late two uh, for her between 04 and 08 which is when she won her first three Wimbledon 04 to 08 she had uh, I think it was six different semi-finalist appearances two quarterfinals and then that final at the 07 Australian Open which uh, by the way if you have any thoughts on that match now is the epilogue if you want to go for it well, I was just going to say, like, that match is, like, one of the most striking, like, jarring curb stompings of all time in tennis. Mm-hmm. Where, like, some, and it was actually the match that reminded me a little bit of it was not as extreme, but Djokovic Nadal mm-hmm. uh, last year's Australian Open 2019, where it wasn't a match that was, like, a match. Those two are similar to me because they weren't a match where it was expected to be a blowout, and it was. And, like, that can have a very jarring effect on a rivalry i think sometimes when you're really thinking like oh they're kind of coming in level and people can rewrite that and reimagine that but they really both those matches i think they really were considered pretty 50 50 and they just weren't it was one of them coming out swinging hard early and really delivering a pretty early knockout uh and that can be very striking and yeah. so as much, as much as i appreciate you know long great epic you know five setters it's also something very satisfying about a really decisive result sometimes and those those two matches uh, both strike as that no absolutely you know if people are still listening at this point they'll they won't mind one last tangent but as you mentioned you just went on yeah i was gonna say you just went on gill's show to talk about delpo uh or delpo excuse me to talk about Roddick fetter we actually just recorded that on sunday as well though i think yours already came out ours hasn't yet so shout out to gill as always um but you know you talked about that match and i have a question for you and this is how i'm gonna and i'll get it back to our match but for Roddick Federer, and again, you take slack because you say, does it really need to be best of five? And you talk about the role of a tiebreaker, these matches getting too long. For Roddick Federer, A, do you think the ending of that match is better if they play a tiebreaker at 12-all? B, do you think there's a chance Roddick can win that match if they play a breaker? No and yes. I, I, I mean, I mean, obviously he doesn't win the other way, so I have to say there's a chance he can win if it's a tiebreak. It would just change things. Um, although he did lose a few tiebreaks previous to that in that match. Mm-hmm. So tough to know. Um, yeah, I, I don't I, – I like I like the fi- – and Wimbledon's – obviously Wimbledon final is such an occasion. Like I don't mind a long Wimbledon final every mm-hmm. now and then. That's fine. Um, the stakes are so high. Uh, and, yeah, and I, I, I like long final sets. I just don't think it should have to be four sets of uh, – foreplay to get there i think i think that you should be able you should be able to enjoy the extended finish without mm-hmm. having to take four hours to hopefully get everything coordinated to be there um so yeah that that's uh that's kind of my take on on that match but i, I yeah that's a great match too yeah, that's fair. I, I like the finale of a tiebreaker, and I just think that would have helped Roddick to be like, I just have to hold serve till twelve all, and then give myself one final, uh, you know, uh, jump, jump. I mean, like, what was the sure. was the tiebreak in Djokovic Federer last year? Was that any good? That tiebreak? No. 
Yeah, right? no, so not really. An early mini break and hangs on to it, and it's not, you know. Yeah, but Roddick was up 6-2 in a breaker in the second set. Again, we're off topic here. What, the, what, the reason I brought that up is because I ask, I wanted to ask, A, if they, well, just given the back and forth in that Serena game and then just sort of the way from that momentum Serena jumped on Sharapova, is this match better if they play a tiebreaker at 6-all? No, 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 no. Like, honestly, why would, why would you abbreviate the best part? The yeah. best part is when both people have a chance to win when it's back and forth, when it's kind of overtime. Like I said, I've, I've mentioned hockey earlier, but I'm a big hockey fan. So, like, why would you? <laughs> but, like, NHL playoff type is, like, when NHL is most beloved, when everything matters and everything's really high stakes, and you get that. In tennis, and these long-standing things, obviously, and I said this on the podcast with, with Gil as well, but, like, Isma, who's kind of the, the freak show version of that, but I do think there is was a big benefit to tennis when they had those long matches they did capture imaginations outside of the sport and i do think that's something that tennis can lose by not having that anymore i don't know if we're about to sign off but before we do no we're not i still have a couple more okay well let me do something completely off topic i love it i I don't know if you've seen it but can you tell who's on my shirt Uh, i can't tell. can you tilt your screen down just for the sake of i want you you to guess i i I know it's not visible right now but who do you think which current tennis player is on this shirt that i found uh, and my dad had printed off from a photo he took i'm gonna i was gonna guess evan king just to make it a michigan thing but i'm gonna say that's probably not what you did i'm gonna say andy roddick top of the hair is not too far off from evan king but it is uh gail Moffey. oh that's first of all that's a beautiful shirt i just went diadem hoodie because i always stay on brand you know diademsports.com promo code cr50 um but yeah <laughs> that is a beautiful shirt well, sure. I kind of I thought it'd be more visible from the camera, but yeah, this yeah, I've been wearing is, the Gail Moff t-shirt the whole time. That is awesome. No, that, I would get myself uh, a pair of that. All right, again, home stretch of questions here. A pair of it. I would get myself a copy of it. I think like Vista print or something equivalent. Like it's, yeah. it's not a hard shirt to make yourself. Well, nowadays you'd have to pair it with this Fidelina edition as well, just to keep things, you know. And yeah, exactly. Accentuate with yeah. Yeah. All right. Again, home stretch. Good match or entertaining match. The one we just talked about for so long? No, oh nine, yeah, yeah, oh five. five. Yeah, I, I think I think great match because of the intensity. Like I, I, I honestly like I will take competitive intensity and like fireworks and drama, if you want to call it that, and like high stakes over like clean hitting and like but like but cold and detached. Mm-hmm. For me, this match was like very fiery and very important and very heated and very high stakes. And then it was kind of scratchy and they didn't always hit the ball in the court. You know, that's okay. <laughs> I can forgive that. No, there's a, I, I don't remember when it happens, but Sharapova hits, she holds, or it was on a game point, she hits a winner, and there's this look in her eyes, and she's just, it just has this look of, I've got this match, and I am so determined to win this match, and you don't see that fire day in, day out, so I, just from your ordinary match, so I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if you see something you see, like, in tennis much now, because I don't know, it's, it's kind of an interesting time, where, like, these were, again, mm-hmm. two young superstars like both claim going for something at the same time and neither tour is giving exactly that right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting moment to see. And, and I think we'll get there soon. And I think we have, well, especially WTA, like you mentioned with a uh, possible new generation coming up with Andrescu and Osaka and Barty, if you want to throw her in there and Kenan. Yeah. Those, if those kind of players can constellate together as stars and create something uh, pretty, that would be, that'd be nice. The problem is they all like each other too much. I need some hatred. I need a reason for them to dislike each other. I think that adds to it. 
you do need like I do think a little bit of, of beef goes a long way in a stew, but I think that you know I think that yeah I think they as they if they become actual rivals if they see themselves as standing in each other's way consistently then that'll happen organically yeah, it'll yeah. get more attention. But right now like you know there's so many years we had with eight different players in Grand Slam finals and yeah. so. Uh, that happened what two years in a row. So there's no like, there's not women's tennis. I'm talking about. There's no consistent development of rivalries. And even like you know, Big Four. Like, if even if they all are like doing like you know, insta lives with each other, like those matches <laughs> still feel heated because there are still are heated in their own way, because they are there are still stakes and they are still playing for something and they understand the context. Where I, at least for me, I don't feel. Maybe you disagree, but like a Djokovic team final doesn't quite have that yet. It doesn't no, have that. That's it's just different. It's different. No, Stakes feel different. It's more of a competitive vitriol on the court. Like Federer and Djokovic on the court do not like each other, and I could argue, and I have a theory that off the court there might still be a little bit of tension between them. It's like a Steph Curry Lebron sort of thing, where it's like you're stealing my shine. Like why are you doing that? Um, but you know that's that's an Alex Gruskin theory, I suppose, for another time. But yeah, that that's where you know, uh, and it's a good thing. I you know it's a healthy sport when all the players are engaged with one another and trying to build the sport together. But yeah, the a rivalry. You know, rivalries help build sport. It's something that captures the imagination of so many fans. And so, of course, uh, it was something I would love to see in the modern game. All right, last one for you. Oh, sorry, you have a comment? No, I was just going to say, I also think, like, to get it back to the match we talked about, I do sort of think that, like, when you have a match like Serena Sharapova did in 05, it will kind of, in some way, will always stay a rivalry. Like, when you have that kind of foundational moment together where you had this clash of titans... At, you know, in some ways, like with this kind of stakes, like that residue will always be there in a, in a way that like there were always people still getting excited. I'm trying to think of an example. Like, let's. Uh, I'm trying to. Think, I don't have a good example on top of my head, but let's say, like, if the, every time like in the future that Nadal and Soderling played each other, right? Yeah. That was always gonna have like something to it because mm-hmm. like they had that one moment that was so significant. And so even if Soderling, and obviously his career was not much longer after that match, but had he stuck around, like it would have always been like, oh, like this one to circle because they do have that one really seminal moment. Yeah, no, I, I think that's completely fair. I mean, how about Delpo versus Fed or Delpo versus Djokovic, just Delpo versus any of them. He steps on the court. It's a rivalry. Yeah, and so I think that's completely fair. All right, last one for you. Was this the peak performance for either of these players? I could argue that first set from Maria is as well as she has ever played. And I'm not saying she didn't continue to play well, but you know, outside of that first set, I don't think this was a peak performance for either player. Maybe competitively, but not tennis-wise. Wise. Well, I'm not sure when you started watching the women's tennis more, but like I do think that Maria's best tennis was all was all happened in the first sort of five years of her career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think her maybe her best most dominant slam was the 08 Australian Open, which when she finally won this tournament, and she was just dominating people. That was a really really impressive tournament run that she had. Uh, some really impressive score lines against players. She beat four and zero over Annan, three and one over Yankovic, five and three Ivanovic. And Hennon had some like thirty something match winning streak, and then she got bageled by Sharapova. Like it was that kind of like. And Dementia, she dominated. Too. She beat Davenport in the second round of that tournament. 2-0 over Dementia, uh, Dementia, 1-3 over Davenport. That's ridiculous. It, it was crazy. So, like, that was, like, all that's to say with, with Maria, like, she was better before the shoulder, and she was a different player. And that, like, and she was kind of, a lot of it was a shadow of herself after the shoulder injury, which she would say herself, but her, like, willpower then became her biggest weapon. 
and that that she was eventually able four years there was a four year gap between slams between the oh eight Aussie and the 2012 French, but that she was able to get herself there eventually is a big testament to her. Um, but I mentioned the Meldonium earlier. I'm going to bring it up again. Like she was a better player, like pre Meldonium, like in a lot of ways, like she was a more physical player. And she says that she, I think she started taking it in late 06, I believe was her story after the U S open in 06 or maybe 05. I forget exactly which one it was, but like she, she was amazing before whether or not you think it helped her later on, you can debate that, but like she was an amazing physical athlete before that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's completely fair. And obviously, for her, uh, even through her first five seasons, there's a, a case for a Hall of Fame career just in those first five seasons of how good she was, how she came on the storm. It's a, uh, you know, at, at one point I think Mary Carrillo compares her to Monica Seles, and that's always going to be the teenage comparison because Monica Seles is the most accomplished teenager in. Uh, uh, you could argue men's or women's tennis history, um, but it's true. All of it's true. She was that impressive physically. She had all of the tools, except for maybe volleying, in her game, in her skill set, uh, and it speaks to the impact of this match. That unfortunately for her, uh, you know, that there were, you know, the certain different injuries, different nicks and bruises, and the serve starts to go away. But in this moment, uh, everything is working. So it was a really fun match to watch. Yeah, I also just think that, like, and I was talking about this a little bit with Gil also, but, like, compare this to, like, Federer and Nadal, uh, 08, which is another, like, big sort of match of the century candidate. And people do talk about this as being, like, one of the women's matches, match of the century, even though quality, obviously, is not where they're talking about there, but just the sort of the stakes and the emotion and the, how pivotal it was. Like, this match arguably was an inflection point in a way that I can't point to almost any match of, like, the big four being, like, a real real inflection point because they all they were around for so long that they almost always had time to course correct like you know like nadal beats federer 08 wimbledon everyone thinks it's torch passing he finally wins on grass da, 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 da. but like federer's fine federer's still going and federer's still doing things like sharpova was never i think in some ways never totally the same after this loss and Even I, she I was think still a for... hall of famer yeah, and again, just because I have to argue, Djokovic, 2010 U.S. Open, he fights off match points versus Fed. He does it again the next year. That sequence felt like a little bit of a turning point, but certainly you can't point to one match because Federer has still beaten him in the years that have since passed. For Serena, I really do think the only comparison you can make to her is someone like either A, LeBron, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali. That's the quality of athlete she is. And it's the multiple peaks, right? There's young Serena who does the Serena slam from, you know, she makes that final at the 01 US Open, but then from there through the 03 Wimbledon, she's just dominant. She then sneaks this title in before, you know, a couple of injuries. And then it's the 2007 version of Serena who wins five titles through 2010. Then you get 2012 to 2015 Serena, where it's just like we, uh, the, the fact that that might be her, you know, her best five-year stretch that late into her career. It speaks, and through 2016 as well, speaks to just, there's these different primes. There's these different versions of Serena. At first, it was just this physical specimen. Then it's in this match, you know, the person who can overcome these ad, uh, adversity and can think her way through these different matches. Then it's just, you know, a kind of confluence of both of them through that later stretch where she's just at the top of the game and mentally has 
has an edge over everyone else. And the roots of that can all be traced to this match. You're absolutely right. This is one of those inflection points. I'm glad that, you know, I'm going to steal that term for Serena Williams. That's a Michigan term for sure. Uh, I was, I'm sure that's an angel hauler. Um, but, you know, I'm, I feel like that's why, uh, you know, this has to be uh, a match. That's why I was so excited when you recommended it. I was like, yeah. I, you know, final thoughts for you uh, in terms of. Yeah, I'm, terms curious, of, I'm, curious, yeah, I'm curious more what you what you got out of this because you were not someone who was watching this match live you were saying like what do you what was it like for you looking back at this and did it change the way you think about uh either of these women so for that's a very good question uh again i you should host a podcast um but yeah i did a pod today i'm not gonna say who the guest was but it, it he kept saying that's a really good question i wanted to be like i know that's a good question that's why i asked it uh but i was like but you don't be don't be rude to your guests so i apologize for doing that to you but so, it's the so, first time you've complimented anything. So, it's- <laughs> well, I liked your shirt. I like your shirt. I like your hair. I like your mustache. I like all of it. Uh, I'm a fan of you, Ben. I called you literally the most sought after person in tennis podcast right now. If that's, <laughs> I know, but I'm also sensitive. I don't know if you know that. That's a quality about uh, me. But I guess I suppose that's an issue for another time. Um, going back to answer your question, going back and watching this, my concept is, you know. After, because she did the Serena Slam in 2002 at the beginning of 2003, and I know there were a lot of injuries between then and 08, 09, which is really when I started to watch. And at that point, outside of injuries, when Serena Williams was playing, she was winning slams each and every season. And to see this version of Serena, a 23 year old Serena, who, yes, was coming off of surgery, but she just appeared vulnerable. There wasn't, especially on the forehand side, I have never seen her serve and her forehand. I just, that sort of inconsistency, that's not something, that's not the way she's ever played in my lifetime. And to see that form of her, uh, it was different. And I, you know, I really did think to myself, because I tried to come in somewhat blind, and I was like, oh, I, like, I don't remember, does Sharapova win this match? And I, like, through the first set, I was like, does Sharapova win this match? I was like, I'm pretty sure Serena wins this match. And I started to doubt myself. And what really made me upset, even more than the Serena part, because I can see where Serena's improvements came from, but was just how good Sharapova was. And I think that's something I did. I, I knew she was really good when she was young. Not that she's not still young, but when she was freshest in the game. And to see her move like that, to see the sort of athlete she was, why she has become a cultural icon, because she's not Serena, but she, you know, it, a career achievement wise but she's in that she has that sort of celebrity she has that sort of uh, cultural status and now I understand why because I could totally see you know if I was 17 18 I would have just been all Maria Sharapova all the time when you mentioned the vulnerability and like we didn't talk about I talked a little bit what uh, Sharapova's next year was like but Serena's was way worse I mean like Serena so she wins this tournament wins the 05 Australian Open and then kind of goes into a bit of a spin she loses her conditioning starts going. She, I think she starts having motivation issues. Obviously, her her sister had been killed a couple of years earlier, and I think that was sort of lingering with her, and other things were going on and getting distracted by wanting to be an actress and things like that. It was really a legitimate conversation around Serena at that point, as silly as it seems in retrospect. And, you know, she loses at Wimbledon that year to Jill Krabis, uh, which is a terrible loss in her career. And shout out to Jill, who's, who's wonderful and lovely, but it was a bad loss for, for Serena. And then she comes to 06, Australia to defend this title and she's like really out of shape she like really struggles through two matches plays this kind of unknown Chinese player named Li Na in the first round I think and uh doesn't do very well against her and just kind of sloppy then loses like badly in the third round I want to say to Hantakova 
and it was just like she was just she was just bad for all of 06 and sort of still out of shape and I think she started skipping a few slams because she didn't want to be embarrassed out there anymore. Uh, yeah, all this is to say, like, these are things that get glossed over in the Serena is a queen, was a queen, always been a queen kind of conversations that happen now and the sort of the sort of tone around her. And I, so I, I'm glad that you got to see a little bit, even though she wins this match, obviously, and it is a foundational thing, but a peak of that kind of vulnerability that was a lot more apparent. If you, There are some clips of Serena, like, circa late 05 and in 06, when she loses. She loses somebody, I want to say it's, like, Tian Tian's son or somebody. She loses somebody in Beijing, and it's a horrible match. Like, she's so bad. And, like, you've, you've never seen Serena as bad as she was at some of these stretches. And, mm. uh, yeah, all this to say, I think that's something... I mentioned Michael Jordan that they're doing this this last dance documentary now, and I do hope that like they do pay time to dwell on like that it was not always like obviously with the Bulls he was hugely great, but like I hope they do have an episode on the Wizards you know, when he wasn't always <laughs> yeah. when he wasn't always great because that is that is still a part of his life. You shouldn't gloss over those things because that's not how time works. You know, this was just as real a tournament for her the 05 Australian Open as the 06 Australian Open was. They both were equally one slam in her career, even if she only won one. But they you know. They both still matter. They both should be taken into account. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad to have shown you a little bit of uh, my formative years in tennis here. You know, I also appreciate that. I also, and again, this is a larger conversation, but it gets to the social, uh, social political, economic impact of Serena Williams's career on the larger game of tennis and just the way she was discussed and the way the coverage surrounded her and her sister and the fact that she, as you mentioned, comes from this unorthodox uh, train. Uh, youth yeah unorthodox childhood where her parents trained her and they took her around the country her and her sister and they're doing all of these different things and you know it, it it's almost secondhand information for me it's like yes i'm well aware of what the history is you want to talk about her parents you want to talk about growing up with venus i sur- superficially i sort of understand what you're talking about and of course venus's fight uh fight for pay equity at the slams significantly relevant and comes a little bit after this but i didn't understand the doubt I didn't understand the, you know, how uh, the process of Serena becoming a champion. This is her, you know, again, to get to the basketball comparisons, her losing to the bad boys or her doing whatever. This is her little blip before things really start to take off. And yeah, it, it, it puts Serena Williams in a completely different light, especially because she's 23 years old. And again, in the it's a prisoner of the moment thing where, she, as you mentioned, this was a really good point that. It, what was in front of them for Mary Carrillo, for Pam Shriver, for Dick Edinburgh, they were just saying what they were seeing, and that's completely fair. But it's 15 years later, and not only is she still playing, but Venus is still playing as well. So it's kind of like, to you, you know what I'm saying? No, she did prove him wrong, and she did sort of, you know, I don't know how much she was listening to the haters. Obviously, you see that clip of her responding to Bud Collins' impression of what she was a little more animated, or clearly that got to her, that question. And uh, and she went a longer, fuller answer and started volunteering more things as very fair defenses of herself. I want, I want to say getting defensive because that sounds like it's unjustified, but it was justified probably here. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, so both things are true. I think both they, they can both be accurate, what they were saying, or both be informed takes. If they were a little bit hot take you're a little bit more uh, hyperbolic than they, they could have been that's fair but they weren't baseless like i think it's just a p- cherry pick and i was you know tweeting out some quotes some clips from this match in preparation for this to get, build up the hype for this this pod for you <laughs> well done. uh be in your hype man i i do think that like some people were like ha look at you like be an idiot at ph shriver and like, that's not <laughs> fair like she was like this is yeah. you know i was like look this is a quote from the second set of that match that's what was happening Serena was losing to sharapova pretty yeah. decisively 
that was the truth then. And then Serena is the one who herself it wasn't incorrect until Serena changed the answers later. But that hadn't happened until like an hour into the future. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so much of it now is going to be like Serena was always great, is great, was always the best. And how dare you ever doubt her? But there, you know, she wasn't always the best. Yeah. She had to earn that and had to prove that. And this is one of those moments where that happened. Yeah, and to that point, some of the other things we didn't talk about. Look, there were questionable camera shots. There's no denying that camera was traveling place. Yeah, the montage yeah. I tweeted of the Sharapova montage. Oh, it's 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 horrendous. Yeah. yeah, I remember. It, I remember just, those days more clearly. That was like very much WTA tenor of coverage. Yeah. There's a lot of like slow mo, like upskirt of like teenage girls. It was very common. Like even like Hingis when she was like 16 was getting that stuff. Yeah, it's so that it, was, it's was not great. The other thing that didn't age well, and I suppose at the beginning this is the graphic team, but they're putting up who Sharapova beat to stay, like who she beat to got there, and each match that goes up, it went. Pew, 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 pew. Like, for the six matches that she bought, they had their own little sound effect, and it was hilarious. I was like, really? You're, we really needed that sound to emphasize it's coming on the screen? We couldn't just put it on the screen? I was just like, no, we can make sounds now. Uh, so uh, I wish so, I made more sounds now. Honestly, I feel like that's a lost part. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, there's no denying that. But, uh, you know, I said I promised you we wouldn't go over an hour, and then I said, no, 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 never mind, an hour and a half, and still haven't hit our usual average length per podcast, but I think we have hit this one. Any final thoughts for you before we wrap this up? No, thank you for having me once again, Alex. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I always know that the the time guidelines is always very loose when it comes, <laughs> when it comes to us, and I, I'm happy to happy to again in this time of isolation to come together and speak this this common uh, language we share in tennis. Uh, it's uh, always always nice. So thank yeah. you for having me, and thank you for yeah for for allowing my uh, my sort of request, Mr. DJ, on this match. And uh, <laughs> glad you were. Uh, along for the ride. Of course, I was going to look up what the top song was in 2005, but I was like, you know what? I don't need to go to the. Look, Gwen Stefani. I know this. This is post Black Eyed Peas. Uh, you know, get get it started because that was the Pistons song in 04. This is after that. Right. So that was like that album of Black Eyed Peas. Yeah. So Black Eyed Peas. That album. Well, I forget what that album was called, but like, yeah. So like, where is the love? Sort of like, shut up, air Black Eyed Peas. But it was yeah. more like 50 Cent was coming on in o- around 0405, and so like mm-hmm. a lot of like. Oh, shorty, it's your birthday kind of thing <laughs> happening here. Uh, this could have been the lean with it, rock with it era. Uh, that might have come a little bit later. A little bit later. Lean, or like, yeah, or like lean back, I feel like. <laughs> like you know, Fat Joe. Yeah, shake the Laffy Taffy. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I'm trying to think of like what else was happening. This was it's a little bit after, again, what kind of people think is like golden era, like early 2000s pop. Like maybe like Toxic was around 0405, I think, in terms of ah. where Britney was at. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 30 potentially coming up around here. This is all just guesses. I'm not yeah. have to pick out exactly what was happening when um, Arcade Fire was showing up by now. So like if you're like more more that speed, uh, okay, Arcade Fire was was on the scene. So yeah, so there were uh, some things were happening in the world. And and no, absolutely not. And I joked around on it, but last thing for our listeners who want to hear more of your stuff, I know you guys have a Patreon, but can you tell our listeners where they can find it all? We do a Patreon. Uh, for ncr patreon.com slash no challenges remaining also yeah for ncr underscore tennis on twitter i'm at ben rothenberg you can find me there search my mentions to see all the great Djokovic feedback i'm getting lately <laughs> just love the Djokovic fans get mad and they have more free time than ever it's fantastic yeah. uh so yeah so that's been good and uh yeah i'm you probably know where to find me yeah how how proud how proud is the first person who tweeted out novak's well, 
I, I know that my buddy Quentin Moinet of L'Equipe tweeted Novax Jokovid. Like, that's, like the, that's like the double step. Um, you know, that's like, good. honestly, like, those jokes are are obvious in there. But, like, briefly to get into that, like, yeah, I like, I, I, it just frustrates me in this day and age. And it's sort of a general fake news kind of phenomenon where, like, people, like, where someone will say something and they people will just like refuse to believe they said it like i thought his remarks are pretty unambiguous really and the people try to create confusion where there isn't any especially his follow-up statement did not walk back the important part of his opening statement um so yeah folks just like i know i know it's gonna be frustrating for your favorite player to do things that you don't uh agree with and that's okay you don't have to you know you can have problematic faves if you even think this is a problem like you can you can enjoy someone's tennis and not agree with them on everything in their life. It's, people are not black and white. There's, there's some gray area here and uh, yeah, enjoy that. Certainly that's the case with both, you know, Serena and Sharapova. So yeah. Yeah. No, no, as you said, we will save that topic for a different podcast, Ben. Thank you as always. It really is a pleasure. And let's agree. Even if we're not recording on video, we should do this on zoom on Skype more often because it's way more enjoyable when I get to see your face and you know, it's just, it makes things better. Yeah, exactly. So thank you again. Take care, stay safe, stay healthy. And we will talk to you soon. I only have one, this one Gail Muffy shirt, but I will uh, <laughs> try to find, try to find more for future episodes if the video is happening or just wear this one more. But. Yeah. Look, I've worn this sweater in the same, in the last 12 episodes. So it's all the same, you know, uh, of course you're just sponsored by a gems life. Uh, but yes, Ben, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you soon. Hope you all enjoyed another edition of CR Classics here on the Great Shot Podcast. A big thank you to our friend Ben Rothenberg, who again, work you can find at the New York Times on his No Challenges Remaining podcast. I'm sure all of you already know that because who doesn't know who Ben Rothenberg is if you're a tennis fan at this point. But thank you to Ben for giving us all of that time. And again, if you want to see a visual representation of the podcast we just did, you want to see highlights of the match we're discussing weaved into our commentary be sure to go to our YouTube channel. Check it out at Cracked Rackets. Uh, super producer Daniel Westhoff, again, condensing this podcast down, throwing in highlights, throwing in commentary, using our green screen to the best of his ability. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me what he can do with these video products. So all of you, be sure to go check that out, and you can find all of our previous episodes of CR Classics on there as well. Uh, by the way, there's a, a ton of other great content on that YouTube channel for you all to enjoy, so just go subscribe. We we are getting closer and closer to the thousand subscriber mark and I know there are more of you out there who listen to this podcast who haven't subscribed yet to our YouTube channel so just be sure to do that you don't want to miss any of our content on there our look at all the comedy that happens on tour with Overserved we took Memorial Day weekend off but we have plenty of content in the Q4 episode 11 so be on the lookout for all of that content on our YouTube channel of course on this podcast we're rocking and rolling we've had uh, episodes of the GS with former ATP CEO Mark Miles with Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick, uh, looking at the organizational structures in tennis, looking at the nuances, you know, the financial side, talking about how a global pandemic will affect tennis moving forward. Of course, talking about things like the Player Relief Fund and talking about the merger talks between the ATP and WTA. Uh, so if you haven't let, be sure to go listen to those. Also, if you need to hear your, you know, your updates on the biggest daily uh, results, controversies, storylines, be sure 
sure to go check out our mini break podcast. Be sure to check out the Cracked Interviews podcast as well. Well, we've had so many great guests from across the playing world, college, juniors, professionals. You can find them all on those podcasts. Also, be sure to subscribe to our newest podcast, our first narrative-based show, the Inside Out podcast, the first season of which looks at the best American male players throughout the open era. It's a fantastic series. I know you all will enjoy. And you can find all of those uh, podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, whatever platform they may be. You can also find them all on our website, crackrackets.com. Uh, follow us, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, for your more daily updates. You want to message me directly, feel free to, at GreatShotPod. Uh, shout out, as always, to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. None of these podcasts could happen without the exceptional amount of hard work they put in behind the scenes. And a big thank you to our friends at DraftKings for the support they give us as well. Go to dkng.co slash cracking rackets to get involved and let them know that we sent you there. Also, for those of you who need that proper fuel, you're getting ready to get back on the tennis court, go check out our friends at Aerobar, the only tennis-specific energy bar out there. You use that promo code CRACKED15, you'll get 15% off your order as well. But with that being said, for our wonderful co-host for today's episode, Ben Rothenberg, who again, work you can find at the New York Times at the No Challenges remaining podcast for our supporting friends at DraftKings and Aerobar, our super producers, Max Fligner, Dan Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Records and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.